Hi, welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hi and welcome to The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meekin. And here we are back for another week full of news, gossip, views, reviews, points of view even, wouldn't you say, Andy? Very much points of view, I mean, we're all about our own personal points of view. And I think I think we should just really set our stall out. We do this every now and then, where we just make it clear that anything that we say during the episode where it comes to reviews of stuff are just our own opinions. They're not necessarily right or wrong. Don't hold us as being the the, the oracles of like what you should watch and what you shouldn't. Always seek something out if you want to see it yourself. And on that note, the film that we're going to be covering in detail this week was always going to be divisive. Yes, that's right. We're going to be talking about The Snyder Cut. Yes, which uh, we'll do a little background of Snyderverse of DC as well as part of it. And we're, we're quite openly honest about how we've not been enamoured with them. And so we got a different person's point of view this week. God, we're just so giving on this show. I, aren't we giving, Andy? <laughs> I think we're giving. We're always giving. So, so Lee, how are you doing? Well, it's certainly been a week. Um, last time we spoke, I was having to self-isolate, awaiting my test result. That test result came more or less after we'd finished recording, and I was tested positive for COVID. And, uh, and therein begins my particular journey, because for the first couple of days, um, I wasn't ill. I didn't have any symptoms. I was tired. Uh, no coughing, no lack of taste or smell. In fact, for the first couple of days, I was a bit run down, but, but nothing different. And then it hit me and it hit me big. Uh, sense of smell went, sense of taste went, which is the, the worst feeling in the world. And then energy levels just plummeted and pretty much been the same uh, ever since. And uh, now out of breath, so you might be you'll you'll catch me being out of breath every now and then. But I think I've got away with it pretty mildly. Uh, the family's had it. Uh, I think we've all had it pretty much the same. But we've all had weirdly little variations of it, and uh, uh, it, it's just just been a, a very odd few days. And the the biggest regret about it is is that I thought I'd make the uh, all clear club. You know, once the vaccine had been done and everything like that. I wanted to be one of those people who went, yeah, never got it. We're, we're in that touch and go area at the moment with regards to it because my daughter today has been sent home from school early because someone in one of her classes has been diagnosed with COVID. So she's now got to self-isolate until she gets tested. So we've, we've done this lockdown right. We've done it since this time last year because it's been a year. It's been it has, a year. It's been a year today. Since the first lockdown. It's on the day of recording. This was the very first day of of lockdown. We've managed. I've managed to go the whole year. Our whole family have managed to go without catching it. And is it going to be a case of what we said back in the last year when the schools were going back last time that this is where it could fall apart? Because once you send your kid to school in a class full of other kids, you don't know which families those kids come from have been the ones who have been partying every weekend or just mixing and matching and don't care about it. So it makes no difference how much you obey the instructions and keep yourself protected. You've now got to rely on other people. And that's all because our kids need education. I couldn't have put it better myself because, you know, we got it via our son uh, picking up at school. Um, yeah. He's not been particularly ill because he's only uh, he's only eight. But it's it's uh, he's transmitted it back to us. 
we're the ones who've got very poorly. But as I said to you, uh, the first couple of days, I wouldn't have known I was ill. So if I'd not got tested, I had none of what they describe as the symptoms. Uh, even after uh, being tested positive, it was only a few days in. So if I'd not have been on the ball, hadn't gone and got myself uh, a COVID test, I'd have been out there circulating it. And and I do remember, I, and I've been very critical of what, what how the government's treated this, but they say treat, treat every day like you've got it, and especially around other people. And that is so true. But we're not here to talk about uh, the, the down and disappointing things in the world, other than maybe Andy's views on Zack Snyder <laughs> of Justice League. We are here to give you film geekery, information, reviews, views. And in this episode, we will be looking at a deep dive into the Snyderverse. And a quick dive straight out again. <laughs> we'll be taking a brief look at Falcon and Winter Soldier, episode one, which appeared last week on Disney+. Plus. Of course, what's happening on all the streaming services, our neat things. But before all that, we'll kick off with the segment we've come to know and love as the news. That's right, Andy Meakin has been scouring the interweb for the latest news and gossip. So Andy, what's been happening in the news world? What have you got for us this week? There's been a lot, as you'd imagine, with Zack Snyder's Justice League coming out. Um, there's been a lot of Warner's news circulated this weekend because now whilst all the let's be honest, the toxic fans are saying that all the Warner's news that's come out has been deliberately to upstage Zack Snyder's Justice League. It's not. It's because when a studio releases something of one of their projects, every interviewer wants to know what they're doing to go forwards. And that's why there's lots of news. So let's start off. Warner's and DC are bringing our man to the screen. Our man? You know, the hero who only had powers for an hour? That our man? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's been three different versions of the character from the comic book history, and it's unsure which version it's definitely going to be based on. But I personally hope it's going to be the Rick Tyler era, where he had the hourglass that allows him to see one hour into the future, so he can try to prevent actions from taking place. But he can see the pattern unfolding as it's going along. Uh, Gavin Gaines and Neil Widener will write it. We'll get to know more details about it as it goes on. But in recent years, the character has hit TV screens for new audiences in Legends of Tomorrow. And even Stargirl had a variation on Our Man. So we'll know more when it happens. But I'm loving that Warners and DC are starting to tap into these lesser known characters. They're not relying on Superman. They're not relying on Batman going forwards. They're starting to tap into their full potential. And on a similar note, uh, a writer has now been tagged to the Zatanna script. Yeah, I saw that. Now, Zatanna, for those who don't know, is actually a member of the Justice League. And she's one of the uh, the occult characters that they have. She's a, a, a sorceress or a, a witch. I'm not quite sure, but she's... Uh, She's one of those characters who's, who's always been a bit of a cult, but has gained a lot of momentum due to her appearance in the Dark Justice series. Yes. Uh, the writer who's been signed up to pen the script is Emerald Fennel, who is a big name at the moment. I mean, she gave us Killing Eve, but is now up for three Oscar nominations for her work on Promising Young Woman. And it's unknown whether she's going to direct the Zatanna film, but I'd suspect that we might be hearing something of that as we get closer to the Oscars itself, if not just after the Oscars, because if she's up for three different things for one film, 
let's be honest, they're going to want to tap that potential. Uh, the character of Satana was created in the 60s, is a stage magician who actually can wield mystic magics. If you think Doctor Strange but likes to put on a show, there you go. That's um, Zatanna. Uh, I'm quite excited again because, again, it's a lesser-known character. I want to see these lesser-known characters because that's what made Marvel... I mean, I don't like to compare Marvel and DC, but you have to acknowledge how Marvel tapped into their B and C-list characters to get their cinematic franchises going rather than just saying, oh, everything's got to be about this character and this character. Talking of DC, isn't there some news about Michael Keaton and some doubt over whether he's going to reprise the Batman role? Yes, um, it, it was an interesting interview that he had when he was asked about his role in it because it appears that he's not really paid any attention to it himself. He said that he's deep into something else at the moment. He told them when he got the flash script through, I'm deep on something else at the moment. I'm not sure if I've got time for this. He's. Uh, it looks like he's not even read the script uh, because he, he's just very like nonchalant. He's just like, well, you know, I've, I've got other things going on. He's going to give it a consideration. But it will all depend on the shooting schedule and the COVID situation in the UK because the film is going to be filmed within the UK. Uh, Pre-production is already underway and shooting begins next month. So it's looking more and more unlikely that he's going to be back. So is it time to call in Val Kilmer instead? (laughs) That would be an interesting choice. I mean, at at the end of the day, the the idea is that they, they want to bring in a multiverse, alternate universe Batman. So I'd imagine that that role could be recast with any i mean even george clooney (laughs) if keaton can't come back get clooney on board give him a chance to play a batman that people love because he had potential he was just in the wrong film he he could redeem himself couldn't he and everything that went before um while we're still on the probably the tail end because there's always going to be dc news but i think this is putting the nail in the coffin on a certain rumor which is warner brothers are saying no to an air cut of the Suicide Squad. Yes, this all came from an interview that Ansarnoff has had with Variety, which got published on Monday, which covered the Snyder Cut, the future of DC, and of course, the multiple allegations, etc. With regards to the Aya Cut, she was just asked, so is there any plans for it? And she categorically just went, no, there's nothing happening. So that has been completely ruled out, which has caused a bit of backlash from fandom who think that... Of course, why not? That's one film that should get a cut. And to be honest with you, I... When that film first came out and I'd read about like how there was different versions and what that version was, wasn't Aya's version. I kind of wondered, I'd like to see it. I don't want them to spend 70 million to polish it up and change the film. I just want to see that rough cut. I want to see the work print. I want to understand what Aya's approach was because I like pretty much all of his films. I think he's a great visionary director. It will be interesting to watch, but Basically, she's said that they're not going to spend any more money on it. They're not going to do what they did with Zack Snyder's Justice League. They're going to just leave it. Let's just not dwell on it. Also in the interview, once more, it appears <laughs> that Ray Fisher, Ray Fisher may have been making up some stories when asked to share details. Because Ray Fisher... Allegedly, just in case Ray's still listening. Allegedly, Ray Fisher had previously stated that because of non-disclosure agreements, he can't share specifics about the abusive behaviour he endured that he's reporting and posting about online and Anne was asked is there an NDA that would prevent him from publicly sharing these details and she replied not that I know of no which means that okay Ray balls in your court release these details she also confirms that Hamada who Fisher's targeting these days didn't interfere from from what she understands 
he was actually part of the meet, meeting who greenlit the Snyder Cut taking place. And she claims that he offered Fisher a part in the Flash movie, which he turned down because he didn't want to work with Warners. Um, obviously, Fisher went onto social media that same evening to post out a chain of tweets that were definitely words, but didn't actually disprove anything that was said. He was once again just claiming that there was racism without pri- providing any details, despite not being under a non-disclosure agreement. He could release the details if he wanted to. Why isn't he? That makes you speculate, well, because he'd get sued. And he'd get sued because not everything he's saying has some basis, in fact. Um, He dismissed the investigators' claims that Hamada didn't didn't interfere again, skirted around the claims that Hamada offered in a role, and said that they need to say what the investigation did find. The public is a lot smarter than what you give them credit for, is what he finished his whole lot of tweets for. And yes, he's spot on there, which is why his constant claims of having proof that, that yet never actually stating anything conclusive, even though we now know that there isn't an NDA against him, doesn't quite ring true. Now, I'm not saying that his allegations are unfounded. We already know that Joss Whedon was removed from a Warner Brothers project and a HBO Max project. We know that something has happened. Do we need to know the details? No. But do we believe that this chain effect that he's going around the whole lot of Warners one by one is valid? I'm, I'm not sure. I need to see the evidence. And this is the problem. We need to see the evidence before we, before we take sides. But too many people in the fan community are taking sides, despite the fact he's still not provided anything conclusive. That's the point that I want to make. He's not provided anything conclusive. And every time that he responds to anything that's said, he never provides conclusive stuff. Stop hanging on his every word. Elsewhere in the interview, Ansarnoff confirmed that they will not be continuing the Snyderverse, whilst, yes, the characters that were in there will get continued in one way, shape or form. The Snyderverse, as it stands by the end of the Zack Snyder's version of the film, doesn't exist anymore. So there's no plans to give Zack Snyder any more films, any more projects. Helen Mirren has been cast in the Shazam sequel, Fury of the Gods. Just when you thought there was no more DC news, along comes a DC story right Like I say, there's there's loads that dropped this week, Warners and DC. Yeah, she signed up to play the villain Hespera, who's the daughter of Atlas. Uh, David Sandberg is returning to direct, and of course, Zachary Levi is back as Shazam, with Asher Angel back as Billy Batson. I really enjoyed Shazam. It's my favourite of the DCEU. It had such heart, such strong story and some great comedy and action in there. Looking forward to seeing this sequel. So on the other side of uh, the Great Hollywood Divide, we've got Disney and they've got, I believe, some changes to their release schedules, including a couple of Marvel projects. Yes. Now, here's the news that people were waiting for and we've been speculating for quite some time. Black Widow has moved date. And this time, it will also be released on Disney Plus Premium. Now, that's a disappointment, uh, but we, with a bit of luck in this country especially, uh, will get a chance to see it in the cinema, won't we? Yes, cinemas should be open by that point. Uh, July the 9th is the new day to shift from middle of May. Cruella has also moved to May the 28th for the same split-release treatment of cinemas and Disney Premium. Pixar's next film, Luca will drop straight to Disney Plus without the premium charge on June the 18th. Now, I've got to ask, who did Pixar annoy that their films don't seem to be worthy of actually getting any money for? Because Soul went straight to free. This is going straight to free and not getting a cinematic release in any territories that has Disney Plus. Pixar should be the gem of the Disney stable, but it seems that they're burying their films and it makes me wonder what's happened. 
Um, other changes mean that Free Guy is now August the 13th, shifting from May. Shang-Chi is now September the 3rd. King's Man, which has been delayed more than, well, New Mutants by this point. It was originally due out in 2019, is now December the 22nd. Deep Water is January the 14th, and Death on the Nile is February the 11th next year. Eternals is still hanging on to the November the 5th release, and Spider-Man is still scoping that early December release date. So that means that we're going to get four Marvel films in the back end of this year. So good things do come to those who wait, and we have seemed to be waiting for Black Widow, well, for nearly a year now, haven't we? (laughs) Yes. Um, There is also another kind of Marvel-esque project, which will be coming out in that time period as well. Venom, Let There Be Carnage, has swung into a September release date from its planned June the 25th to now land on September the 17th. Even though theatres are opening up and pre-bookings on films like Godzilla vs. Kong were strong, showing a desire to return to the cinema, the crush of big releases is worrying some studios. And so this move is more about the optimism for the levels of business and finding an empty slot. Now, this decision was made before Marvel and Disney decided to move all their things. So I'm kind of wondering whether they've jumped the gun a bit there because they probably could have had an empty slot if they had stuck with the June 25th. But it does look like it's going to be a busy back end of the year. So in a bit of other Marvel news, Marvel's Ironheart has been cast uh, with Dominic Thorne taking on the role of Riri Williams. Um, Not a character I'm that familiar with. I read one of the trade paperbacks, wasn't particularly enamoured, but... You know, with Marvel, anything could happen. I don't know if it's a Disney Plus project or it's a, a, a Phase 4 project. I'm just not sure at this stage about you. Have you heard anything? I believe it's a Disney Plus project. And obviously the character is to become the new Iron character with Tony Stark now being, well, deceased. In the comic books, she was a teenage genius who basically retrofitted Iron Man technology to create her own iron suit. So it will be part of the phase four because everything TV and films are interlinking. And don't be surprised if she crops up in some of the team-up films as it goes along. So while we're on the subject of Disney Plus and Marvel, uh, Marvel are developing a Hawkeye spin-off featuring the character of Echo. Character originally appeared in Daredevil and is a deaf character. And there's some casting even though we don't know whom yet. Uh, Kingsley Benadire is to play a villain in the Marvel Disney Plus series, Secret Invasion. I've got all goose pimply just saying that. (laughs) Uh, Those who've read the comic series of the event Secret Invasion will know where we're going with this one. Interesting casting choices over this past week have included Vin Diesel's 10-year-old son is going to play a young version of his character Dom in Fast 9, which this film was originally supposed to be out about a year and a half ago. And they're still filming more stuff for it because they've, take, they've taken advantage of the delays through COVID, etc. to just go, well, we can put more in there. Um, Fast 9 will introduce Dom's brother, Jacob, played by John Cena, to the story and will allegedly land on June the 25th. Allegedly. I'm, I'm still going to use the word allegedly whenever I talk about release dates on most films. You can always follow that with the word hopefully and, <laughs> and then with a please hopefully. In other casting news... Seth Rogen has now signed on to play Spielberg's uncle in the untitled feature that the director's making based on his own youth. Yeah, I saw this. Really interesting. So Spielberg's writing a a very personal project with Tony Kushner, one of his go-to writers. 
Uh, and it's a drama that is inspired by his upbringing in Arizona. And as you said, uh, Seth Rogen's on board to play his favorite uncle. We don't know much about the story. It just follows family members across several years. Yep. And Michelle Williams is already on board to play a role which is inspired by Spielberg's mother, although it will deviate from her actual character in some way. Filming will start in summer with a planned release for 2022. Be interested to see. I mean, I, I'm I'm quite intrigued because I'm sure it's going to tap into where he got his love of film and storytelling from. That's got to be a key aspect of this story because let's be honest, his whole life has been defined by Super 8s. Yeah, and I'm still waiting for a trail because it's gone very quiet about West Side Story, his remake. I'm a big fan of the uh, the original Robert Wise version. So looking forward to seeing any kind of footage to see how he's tackling that new version. I know we should have had that Christmas. I don't know what the delay is now. I don't know whether we're going to get it Christmas this year. But again, we use words like hopefully and um, and please. You never got to see Extraction, did you? I didn't know. Uh, Sam Hargreave, who was uh, a first unit director and was a stunt director on the Avengers movies, he led that. Now he's directing a new feature and... He's got Jake Gyllenhaal in the cast, and that's called Combat Control. And apparently, there's still work carrying on on an Extraction sequel with Chris Hemsworth. Hey, Extraction's one of those films that is sat in my to-watch list, and I just can't find time. And me, me to-watch list is basically all of Netflix by this point, because every time I see something land on there, I add it to my watch list and never get round to watching it. So speaking of Netflix, Miller and Lord's animated adventure, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, will land on Netflix on April the 30th. Uh, this is the animated comedy which sees a tech uprising against mankind. And the Mitchell family and two friendly machines are the world's only hope to survive. Voices of actors such as Danny McBride, Olivia Coleman, Maya Rudolph, John Legend, Conan O'Brien, Abby Jacobson, and many more are padding out the cast. I do like Miller and Lord's approach yeah, to animation, so I'm quite looking forward to this one. And also for Netflix, Forrest Whitaker has joined Tom Hardy for Gareth the Raid Evans's Havoc for Netflix. This is a film which sees a drug deal go wrong. Hardy must fight his way through the criminal underworld to rescue a politician's son, unveiling a web of corruption and lies as he does. Is this the fever dream for me? Or And please, I'm hoping it is, that I've heard there's an Ace Ventura third movie <laughs> in the works. And now tell me that it's just... It's just a, a side effect of, of my condition. Yeah, this this came from um, a talk about the catalogue of titles that the team at Morgan Creek have given to Park Circus. There was a, a, a little nugget of information that said that, to quote the person from the interview, they're pretty excited about the franchise developments with Exorcist and the Ace Ventura franchise. Nothing you'd ever think of to say in one sentence, really, ever. So from that, it's basically The Exorcist is getting more films or more TV spin-offs, and the Ace Ventura series is going to go further. A further line mentioned that Amazon have a potential deal on the property for the Ace Ventura, with the Sonic writers Pat Casey and Josh Miller allegedly involved. Mm. Given the writers of Sonic there and how much I enjoyed that, I can kind of see it, and I can kind of look forward to it. They've worked with Jim Carrey on Sonic, so it makes sense that they would be somehow linked to this. Let's see. Let's see if anything comes of this, but at the moment, let's put it down in the possibilities. Uh, we've spoken about Adam Wingard's face-off sequel a few times. You know, we, we got a bit bizarrely confused as to whether it was going to be a sequel or a reboot. It was going to be a sequel. And apparently, Nicolas Cage and John Travolta might actually be popping up in it. It gives it some kind of credence then, doesn't it? Oh, do they popping up as each other, as themselves, as other people? Who knows? It's kind of baffling. I mean, the, 
in an interview, the developer of it has said that it's about Sean Archer, it's about Caster Troy, that's what this movie's about, it's the continuation of that story. It's hard to talk about other than this, but this is, to me, the definitive continuation. But I'm just baffled as to how Nicolas Cage as Troy can return, given he was harpooned to death in the climax of the previous oh, film. Oh, <laughs> don't let that stop Nick Cage. Nick Cage can, could be harpooned to death and be up and, and have COVID and be up and about in hours. Trust me. Speaking of survivors, uh, Fede Alvarez is tackling a Texas Chainsaw sequel, which will be a direct sequel to the original film, ignoring all the films in between, which seems to be the, the go-to thing to do these days. And the character of Sally Hardesty, the lone survivor of that first film, will return. Obviously, the original actress, Marilyn Burns, sadly passed away in 2014. So the role has been recast with actress Olwyn Fiora, who's going to be playing the role. Alvarez also intends to use old school effects as much as possible, with all effects being done in camera, similar to what he did in the Evil Dead remake to great effect. So colour me excited for that bit of horror. Daniel Radcliffe is going to be playing a villainous role in The Lost City of D. The film will follow a romance novelist, played by Sandra Bullock, who gets stuck on a book tour with her cover model, played by Channing Tatum, when a kidnapping attempt sweeps them into a cutthroat adventure in a film that sounds like someone fell asleep watching Romance in the Stone. I saw this, I saw Daniel Radcliffe's casting, but as soon as I, I, I looked at the, the blurb on it, I thought Romance in the Stone. Yeah, it's a, it is exactly the same concept. The Father of the Bride remake, which is in production. Andy Garcia has now signed up to play the father in this Cuban-American approach to the story, which will be more of a rom-com with multiple elements than the previous versions. The new version is going to be brought to screen by Gaz Alzraki from a script by Matt Lopez, Dady Gardner and Jeremy Kleiner. And finally in the news, the sad news dropped today of the passing of George Segal, who passed away after complications from bypass surgery. Anybody who grew up loving 70s movies, George Segal was one of those reliably great actors who, who brought an awful lot of charm to everything he did uh, and could straddle drama and comedy very, 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 very simply. He was one of those icons as the way that, in the same way that Elliot Gould was an icon. In fact, they, they worked together. He's been doing a lot of TV in his later years, but he still had that charm. Uh, there's a couple of instant movies spring to mind in which I think George Segal was was absolutely uh, absolutely brilliant. But yeah, sad to hear. Yeah, he was. He got an Oscar nomination for his part in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and he's notable for films such as Ship of Fools, The Cable Guy, Fun with Dick and Jane, Look Who's Talking, Love and Other Drugs, and like you say, his latter years' work on TV in shows such as Just Shoot Me and The Goldbergs brought him to a whole new audience. A fantastic career, a CV packed with small roles and large roles across every medium. He was even in Disaster Fair, such as Roller Coaster, and you know how much I love my disaster movies. If you're not familiar with the work of George Segal, then I can highly recommend recommend him playing opposite Robert Redford in Peter Yates' Diamond Heist comedy, The Hot Rock, which is my favourite uh, uh, George Segal film, but also Robert Altman's classic California Split, in which he played opposite Elliot Gould as a, as a gambling addict. Fantastic. Also worth a mention is A Touch of Class, opposite Glenda Jackson. And that is the news. So if you're enjoying the show, then please hit the subscribe button, uh, because every time you subscribe, 
Nicolas Cage makes a film and you don't want him to ever stop. Uh, if you are enjoying it, you can actually find us uh, on radio as well, can't you, Andy? Yes, uh, we are now broadcasting each week on No Barriers Radio. But you can find us out and check us out on Instagram. Filmfile UK. And you can contact us via Twitter at... Filmfile UK. Or just drop us an email. Podcast at filmfile.uk. And you start to see a trend. Okay, <laughs> so... It's been that week and it was always going to be a big show for us. We've been talking about the Zack Snyder Cut of the Justice League since, well, it, it was just a, um, a rumour put out by fanboys. We've even disagreed with it at times, but last week it dropped in the US on HBO Max and it dropped in the UK on Sky Cinemas and Now TV. Andy's had a chance to watch it. I've had a chance to watch it. I think you're going to see some very different points of view. And as Andy said at the top end of the programme, these are our points of views. These are our personal beliefs in it. We're not swayed by anybody. We're not swayed by being comic fans. And trust me, guys, I've been a comic fan since I was a mere nipper, starting out with DC before moving to Marvel. So I think, you know, we're entitled to our opinion. If you dislike our opinion in any way, sucks to be you because we're not changing it. This is uh, why we do the show, to offer our opinions. But before we do that, let's take a, a quick Let's take a quick trip down Snyder Lane and have a look at Man of Steel and BVS, or Batman vs. Superman, as it's better known. I'm getting slow in my old age, Alfred. Even you got too old to die young, not for lack of trying. He has the power to wipe out the entire human race. If we believe there's even a 1% chance that he is our enemy, we have to take it as an absolute certainty. Greatest gladiator match in the history of the world. God versus man. Day versus night. You're psychotic. That is a three-syllable word for any thought too big for little minds. Okay, so you've had a, a chance to revisit Man of Steel and we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, so we're not going to dwell on that. The only thing that, that echoes for me from watching Man of Steel again, a little bit like you, I think I enjoyed it a little bit more because I, I can, went to see the film with a, a certain amount of expectations. There are huge swathes of it, yeah. which I dislike. And I don't put that down to Snyder. I put that down to the script. And the main issue I still have with this film is that boy, the young Clark Kent, didn't grow up to be Superman because of the actions of his father. And it still it still stumbles as a film at that point and lets it down. And of course, the ending uh, with Zod, which has become sort of the, uh, you either hate it or love it scene. There, there are other scenes in it, which I absolutely love. His depiction of small town Americana is absolutely fantastic. The, the battle sequences are great visually, but they're empty and they're empty with, with just mass destruction in a way that I know tried to pay off to some degree in Batman versus Superman. But for me, it, it was um, annihilation porn. Yeah. Well, on my re revisit recently, it gained a half star extra, taking it up to a three out of five film for me. The fundamental issues still reside in there. And the fundamental issue, like what you've suggested, 
same with me. It's the moral core of the character as he's growing up. It's no longer this perfect hero, the, the, the ultimate boy scout. He's now been raised by a farmer who told him he doesn't have to save people if he doesn't want to, which seems to be sending the wrong message. I've seen it said many times by people who don't like Superman as a character that this is a film with Superman in that they do like. And this highlights that this isn't a classic Superman or even the Superman of the comics. Maybe the new 52 comics, but that era's gone. But it's a whole new, and for me, unnecessary, edgy Superman. Superman shouldn't be edgy. Superman shouldn't be dark, depressive, and morose. Superman should be the ultimate beacon of hope. And that's where this film fails to touch on me. If you approach this film not as a Superman film, but just as an alien on Earth film, then yes, it kind of works. But it's just not got the core Superman. And it just doesn't add up from a plot point of view to be told not to use your powers and to watch your your father perish and to leave the family dog behind. But that's another story. <laughs> it, it, it just doesn't add up. It, it's it's there to make a plot point rather than to drive a story. And it's yeah. there to make Superman edgy in a way that he doesn't need to be edgy. And, and it was lazy. It was lazy storytelling. Now I put that down to David Goyer's script more than I do uh, throw that at Zack Snyder. I think Goyer goes for the cheap shot every time in his storytelling. And in two particular occasions, that's what he did. There are some, some great visuals in it. And, and that's yeah. what Zack Snyder does best. He is a filmmaker with, who's a great, great visualist. And of course, he comes from a commercial background uh, and, and it shows. And he's very good at capturing moments. Overall narratives is where I have a problem with his work. But, but when it comes to, to capturing moments and, and some of the, the imagery of, of, of Smallville in particular is, is absolutely lush. Reminds me of Terrence Mann in, in many ways. But it started as down the road, uh, Superman versus Batman, Dawn of Justice, kind of came along to sort of paper over some of the cracks of that film and address some of the, the issues and themes. So it has a direct con continuation. And I think you and I said at, at the time, we wanted to see a follow-up to Man of Steel, see more about Superman than an introduction to Batman. But this is the film that we've got. When it was announced, I remember when it was announced that it would be a Batman versus Superman film. And my instant cynical response was like, oh, so Man of Steel didn't succeed as much as you hoped. And so you need to shoehorn DC's most popular big screen outing character, Batman, into it for no reason at all. And what we ended up getting was a film that tried to do too much in one go. It tried to introduce everything. It tried to set up Justice League. It tried to introduce the Death of Superman story arc. It tried to do Batman battling Superman because obviously someone somewhere had read the Dark Knight Returns graphic novel and gone, wow, that would look good on film. And again, you had a film which has moments. It has some great imagery, some beautiful visuals, but doesn't quite have a soul to it. Um, often when I said I wasn't a fan of Batman versus Superman, I'd get the retort that I need to see the Ultimate Edition as it makes more sense. But the story wasn't actually that hard to follow. That wasn't any of the issues that I had with it. And I've now seen the Batman vs Superman Ultimate Edition and it doesn't really add anything more to it. It just makes the expositional moments more contrived and forces the story along. For the people at the back of the class who weren't paying attention, that's all that the Ultimate Edition does is it fills in the gaps for the people who can't follow a story. But I could, and that wasn't the issue. I remember seeing it and felt it was unnecessarily convoluted. I thought it had some uh, unnecessary additions. It had a few key points which I really liked. I thought Affleck was a, a great choice to play Bruce Wayne and Batman. 
Oh, definitely. Uh, the introduction of Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman has become the heart of the DC uh, universe for me uh, and was simply the best thing in it. Uh, I quite like Jesse Eisenberg's take on Lex Luthor, but incredibly underused. And it, it always felt as though they didn't know what they wanted to do with the character. I like the idea that he's uh, a, a kind of a young Silicon Valley type as opposed to the, the Lex Luthor that we've seen before. And I thought was an interesting take, but it felt convoluted. It felt unnecessary. And we can't, unfortunately, talk about it without again one of the worst pieces of writing which is the martha sequence which hangs in the air every time you see it and created a thousand memes but it's silly no one ever refers to their mom by their first name it it just happens this is one of the moments that whenever you criticize it you can guarantee online someone will jump on yeah and say that you didn't understand it that you've got you've got to be some kind of genius apparently to understand this scene no 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 i get what he was going for i get he wanted to have batman's in a monologue drawing the parallels between what Superman's love for his family is and what his loss of his family were and the name was the one which sparks it the name is the one which makes his memories go oh my this is maybe an alien but he, he loves his mother as well and it gave him a connection I thought was quite an idea we've never we've never dealt with that it's so ham-fistedly inserted and it doesn't make sense and it comes at the end of a, a fight sequence that was contrived in the origin of itself. Why? I I said this from day one. Superman, when he lands face-to-face with Batman, why does he dither just going, we don't have to fight, and then just not continuing? Why doesn't he just say, Lex has been manipulating us, and he's kidnapped my mother, and he's holding a ransom? That would have stopped the fact. There's no reason that fight. That fight exists simply because the script insisted it exists. It has no reason to take place. And again, there's comic book moments relating to it that showed that there was a clear misunderstanding of the similar moments in the comic books that it's ripped the sections from. It's a film that lends from so many comic book stories, but clearly doesn't understand the context that those comic book stories use those moments. But you said Batman, Ben Affleck, great casting. And boy, he was not only just great casting, but that was a great Batman. Yes, the moments was. of Batman were pure. They were the best moments that we've seen of Batman on screen in short little sections. The Warehouse Takedown is pure comic book action and so athletic. This is one, as much as I've loved the Batman films through the years, the one criticism that I've always got is that why does he always stand still when he's fighting? Why does he not actually jump around like he's supposed to and bounce off walls? And we finally got to see that. We finally got to see him hiding up in corners, like in the darkness, so that no one could see him. We got to see all the elements of the character that we've not seen before. And I would have loved to have just had a Batman film. I didn't need to have a forced Batman versus Superman. I, I totally agree. And that was the first time, you're right, that we saw Batman be this 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 creature of the night, not just the, uh, the Dark Knight detective. Though the film did okay, it performed under expectation. We see mostly negative reviews from critics for its tone, screenplay, pacing. Though it did, and this is something we agree with, Game praise for its visual style. And um, we kind of missed out Henry Cavill on that because Henry Cavill kind of, at this point, established himself as, as a great Superman, despite the material he was working with. His charm came to the forefront. His relationship with Lois was expanded upon. It's a shame. It's such a convoluted mess of a film. The final act of Batman versus Superman as well, with the introduction of Doomsday, that's the point at which even the visuals start to suffer. 
and the rendering of Doomsday looks, it looks like 2004 Harry Potter kind of rendering, and it makes the whole, what should be a climatic battle with three of the Justice League teaming up for the first time. It just ends up being a CGI mess. Didn't need to be in there. Maybe this story could have been two films, and it could have took its time building up to this moment. It's a film, like we've said, of moments. That's about it. So if we skip Joss Whedon's Justice League, which we will mention as part of, of talking about the Snyder Cut, along comes this week Zack Snyder's ultimate cut of the Justice League. So begins the end for Dark Side. I've never seen a being this strong. Maybe one. He's back. I spent a lot of time trying to divide us. I made a promise to him on his grave. I need to bring us together. There are enemies coming from far away. They serve an old power. This world is divided. No protectors here. No lanterns. No Kryptonium. It will fall in his name. I have turned worlds to dust. All of existence shall be mine. So Zack Snyder's director's cut, Justice League, clocks in at a whopping four hours and two minutes. And if you're really interested in an extra 40 seconds, it's a greatly extended cut, which for many represents uh, Snyder's unique vision for his troubled DC Universe team up of a film. Born of a vocal fan campaign, uh, a- aggressive at times vocal fan campaign. I watched it going into it, having disliked immensely the theatrical release, as I know you did. Uh, <laughs> I didn't watch it in one sitting. I I used the chapters to break it up. That was less about the film and more about me. I was never bored. I liked it and enjoyed it uh, a a great deal. I think it's the best for me out of uh, Snyder's take on his, uh, his excursion into the DC universe. But there's a lot of faults with it. But ultimately, I have to say, before we say anything else, I did have a good time watching uh, an okay movie. My impression that, yes, it's better than the 2017 release. It, in fact, if you look at my ratings on Letterboxd, it's twice as good because it got two stars instead of one. Um, it's still a problematic film and it creates a few new problems for itself. The story is not significantly different. You could read out the synopsis for the Joss Whedon release and it would match this one perfectly. It's still a bad guy. Steppenwolf is collecting the mother boxes to combine together to destroy Earth and turn it into a dark future. It's still there. And the fans who've been claiming that Joss reshot 80% of the film, I I think that that was a bit of an exaggeration. I'd suspect there's at least 60% of the old cut just filtered differently or edited differently to give different kind of approach to it. The character of Cyborg is expanded, but doesn't actually change the story by doing so. And for me, I... I have to go on record here to say that I've never liked the character of Cyborg anyway. He's always been a bit dull in the comics. I always preferred him when he was in the Teen Titans. Never quite liked his jump into the Justice League. It felt like tokenism. Um, yeah, and he's... I kind of agree with you. He's, he's Emotionally, yes, it's the heart of the film. And, and 
those extended scenes did operate. But it's a bit like you. It's not a character that I particularly like. He's an undefined power. And you get this, like you got this in the Captain Marvel film for, for Marvel a couple of years ago, that her powers were not defined so she could do anything. And that made me go, eh, if I can't tell what your weakness is, I'm not that caring. Cyborg, literally, whatever he wants, his body seems to manually adjust to give him it. And also, there's a moment in the film where his automated defense system reacts to the threat of Superman. Yet that same automated automated defense system doesn't react to any other threats for the whole lot of the film. And it's like, you put that in there for no reason, and now you've created a problem because that's not how you work. One character that did benefit from this cut, though, one character that I got a lot of love for and I cannot wait to see going forwards, The Flash. No, I agree. I loved the little sequence uh, where we got to see a bit of backstory. I mean, all the, the uh, major principles all got a backstory. Some a little bit more than we'd seen before, some completely brand new sequences. Uh, but yeah, the character of The Flash, when Joss Whedon did his reshoots, he'd inserted more comical moments for The Flash and he was a bit unsure of his powers and he was afraid and didn't want to get involved and that diminished the character. Here, he's a character who right from your very first vision of him with the car flipping over and him doing all that action, he's confident in his abilities. He knows what he's doing. He's still jittery, but that's his nature. He's not afraid. He's just perfectly skilled, but doesn't know how to apply himself. And the character, uh, I was not sold on Ezra Miller as the character, but now, man, I am well and truly on board and I cannot wait for the Flashpoint movie because this, this gave him the credit that he needed. That introduction scene, I mean, I know it's it's created loads of memes involving hot dogs online, but you know what? I love the little wry humour to that whole scene. I love the approach of it. An additional character who was added into the film is Martian Manhunter, who gets two scenes. And the first scene that he pops up creates a problem. There's a scene where Martha, Superman's Earth mother, and Lois are talking about the loss of him and what it meant. And then when Martha leaves the apartment... Turns into Martian Manhunter to show, hey, it was Martian Manhunter all along. That diminishes the emotional impact of Superman's mum talking to Superman's love and both having their own sorrows. It's been claimed that the reason that John Jones as Martian Manhunter did that was he needed to get Lois to go to the scene where she would make him realise who he is. But she was already shown earlier on in the film to be going to visit the memorial pretty much on a daily basis anyway. So it wasn't needed and it just made it so that Martian Manhunter, who has all this power, pops up before all the events kick off and doesn't try to save the planet that he's actually living on. Uh, I totally agree. It made absolutely zero sense to me. It, as you said, it undermined that that relationship and that core of those two characters. Um, why didn't he put himself for, forward into the ring if he was so important that it was so important that Lois was a part of Superman's resurrection? Then why wasn't Manhunter part of that resurrection? And then pop up at the end to go, um, yeah, I'll join your club now. Uh, now all the fighting's finished. That's a, it's almost a bit like me. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll join the war, but I'll wait till it's done. Uh, and to be honest, the one element that I liked in the Whedon cut was that Lois was Batman's secret weapon. And I thought that was a nice touch. And um, yeah. uh, it, it kind of undervalued Lois. She was there by default rather than by design. She saw some aggro going off and, and, and heads to the scene. So it makes absolutely no sense. I'll totally agree with you. It was cool to see Martian Manhunter, but that's why it was in, because it was cool rather than it served uh, a purpose to the story. You mentioned right at the beginning of this how much of the film is familiar. Uh, and you're right, all the major plot points are there. You know, we get uh, Wonder Woman's introduction in London, which is uh, which is in the 
the original cut. Yes, I'll I'll buy it. It's a, it's a much longer uh, and darker take on that, but it's still there. The introduction of um, Bruce Wayne meeting Aquaman is there. Uh, the introduction, and everybody was went ballistic at the time, thinking this was a Joss Whedon gag with the uh, "What's your superpower? I'm rich." Seems it turns out it's in this film and and started here because that was more or less exactly the same scene. So I was I was actually really surprised at how much of the plot was intact and how much. Uh, the beats of the film were pretty much the same. Yes, we got rid of the annoying Russian family, but the the ending still takes place in, in Russia, which is always thought was strange in the first version and, and, and felt that must have been an addition because why would you put Aquaman so far away from the ocean? It still doesn't make sense to me. But all the other scenes were, were just longer constructs of, of versions that we saw before. The main issue I have with the film and with the extended running time, yes, it was interesting to go and see the, the additional character scenes, but if you can't get additional character scenes in four hours, you're doing something terribly wrong, is there was a lack of threat all the way through it. One, Steppenwolf, who again looks better in this film than he did and, and less plasticine, even though there are some, some poor almost video game quality effects in there. Even though Steppenwolf was a, a much better realised character, looked better uh, and, and had a purpose at least, is I never felt the Justice League characters were, were, were at all threatened and, and seemed to spend an awful long time talking about a sense of threat than, than this sort of ticking clock hmm. until the, the last mother box goes missing uh, uh, and, and is retrieved by Steppenwolf. Then, then there's no threat. I've never felt they were in danger because you knew, especially when Superman comes back, that Superman is going to sort it all out. I've seen this commented online um, over this past week that Superman is one of the biggest problems with the Justice League because the Avengers, when the Avengers team up, they need to team up to beat a villain that they can't beat alone. Whereas the Justice League team up to beat a villain that Superman can beat alone. And it's Superman is too powerful. Why do you need a Justice League if Superman's alive? So basically, this film, by having Superman come back to life and join the Justice League, he's basically disbanded the Justice League by the end of it because the, the rest of them are useless. The, the runtime of four hours is 23 minutes of slow motion and a, about 20 minutes of coda at the end of scenes that aren't really important to the story. It's all future events that take place. It's like a, OK, here's what you could have won kind of moment for Zack and this is where he got the reshoots in and this is where he got the Joker to be put in in another dark future in a scene where him and him and Batman have a brief conversation that feels really really poorly written and includes crass humor and swearing in the same way that TV shows such as Spartacus inserted just in the in attempt to try to be all mature and adult. It's a 13-year-old child's idea of what an adult film would do by ham-fistedly inserting F-bombs wherever it can that don't actually feel genuine. I, I agree. I agree. I thought the coda, the, the, the film ended for me when uh, Henry Cavill as Clark Kent opened his shirt and we see the S logo. That's where the film finished. The, the coda was unnecessary, especially in light of that we're not going to see any kind of a follow-up for it. And of course, the code had built up the Dark Side character, which um, I remember Dark Side as being a god from the New Gods, and uh, was a, a big fan of Kirby's Fourth World series. However, uh, I have a problem with with Dark Side in it. Uh, he comes across as kind of an intergalactic uh, Genghis Khan, I thought, rather than than a, a new god. Uh, and it was shown that he could be defeated quite easily uh, in the uh, much expanded flashback sequence to his first attempted invasion of the earth 
and and the fact that he forgot that he'd he basically invaded this planet once before and and left it for hundreds of hundreds of years before before coming back uh, and also why when the transportation the boom tube was open he had the army at the ready uh, why didn't he just attack there and then I, I, there were just too many bits that that really really didn't add up to it so it was clear that Snyder wasn't calling the shots on Justice League's 2017 inept film there, there were so many mistakes in it but what is interesting is he's had this opportunity and, and, and a quite a, a unique opportunity to go back and, and readdress the film that he wanted to make. And this is clearly Zack Snyder's vision. And the upshot finally feels that it's a cohesive work from a, a, a very single filmmaking uh, team rather than this sort of shambling monstrosity that, that we got last time, which was a combination of, of visions. It's a triumph. It's a triumph for Zack Snyder. And, you know, congratulations to him. This doesn't happen very often where a filmmaker gets to go back and complete a piece of work that they intended and wanted to make. Uh, it's a triumph for the fans who stuck by it, um, even though everybody had written it off, including us, and managed to turn out a, a, a huge, gargantuan epic of a film. And it is epic. Even if you're not going to sit through it in its whole uh, four-hour running time, you can watch it as chapters and, and see it as something quite, quite unique. It's confused. It's still messy. It has some terrible dialogue. And it's strangely shot in a four-by-three aspect ratio, which the fans have been saying, yes, that's because it's for IMAX. But when this film isn't getting an IMAX release and getting a, a, a home cinema release, it makes absolutely no lick of sense to me. Uh, and, and to some extent, uh, sort of, stunts the visuals of it uh, in my opinion doesn't change my mind of, of Zack Snyder I think he's uh, uh he's got a unique vision and uh as, as moments go he knows how to portray a great moment but the narrative lapses uh, on it are just are just too frustrating and and at times uh weaken what could be a classic film you could have lost 40 minutes out of this four-hour cut and created a better film but that's not what yeah. the fans wanted. They wanted they wanted the, their cake and they wanted to eat it. However, it's safe to say that neither myself or yourself were the fans that this was made for. So obviously we were going to have issues with them because we didn't embrace what Zach was doing previously on the DC films. So I've spoken with friend of the show, very close friend, and the person who we refer to as our DC guru this week to get his feelings on it because Scott who long time listeners of the show will remember from the early days of the show and we will get his voice back whenever we can was looking forward to this immensely so here's a little taste of the interview that I did with him to give his side on Zack Snyder's Justice League as a fan of the franchise as a fan of what Zack's done so far and seeing this journey for you how did this film work did it work did it work as you wanted it to work or was the elements that you thought should have been reined back a bit? It's kind of both because it's tough because it's, it's especially in the current, it, it's just been released obviously in the current sort of um, glow of it. It's very hard to separate the story that led to this away from the final product because this is a film we weren't going to get. Like There's no precedent we were going to get this. If we were going to get this, it's a rushed, self-financed assembly cut. Ten years down the line, straight on home release, like to to get the money poured into to redo a film that had been done in this way. It's just so unprecedented, and to to have a trilogy that that had fizzled out, like like 
it's hard to divorce that from 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 your opinion of it um because it's just a cathartic thing however uh, i do i do agree because if we just got this version four years ago we're probably talking about what we just watched in the Snyder Cut condensed to probably compromised three hours. And that would have been the tortest best version of it. I think that yeah. is fair. Um yeah. I and and I can't I can't deny but 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 because of the way it's gone, he's been given free reign, he's been given like look, you be as indulgent as you want. It's it's he's a kid in a candy store. So we've got four hours, we've got tax on scenes, this that, and the other. And ironically, like if you're judging it as a final product, the the criticisms that can be had are a bit of indulgent and a bit of tacked on. But at the same time, he's doing that for the fans because he's got the ability to, and we're happy for him to. Yep. So so it's a it's a weird one because look, I mean, the final two sequences uh shot were reshot and tacked on, and they feel that, but they're also like amazing. I think. <laughs> like, I love that. Like, <laughs> End of day, the, his version because we've got the theatrical version and yeah, people aren't wrong. Yes, the theatrical versions are chopped up best of this version. We some weed and seeds rewritten, all of the Easter eggy and sequely baiting nonsense cut from it. That's why this is a Snyder cut and not a Snyder sequel. But like, so so yeah, we in very very broad strokes we've seen the film or, or like versions of a lot of the action set pieces. But there's just so much more flesh to this, and 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 the reason I like Batman v Superman is it's oddly lyrical, and it's it, mm-hmm. it, this film has so many allusions to Man of Steel and Batman v Superman to make those films even richer retroactively or watching as a trilogy. It's just more flesh. To, do you know what I mean? And 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 I think that's the recurring theme with this Snyder cut. It's everything's just given more time to breathe. Um, I think this film's the best cyborg I've seen. To to create obviously a Frankenstein's monster learning is he's a god in a digital age, isn't he? Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll have to just say that Teen Titans Go to the Movies had the best version of Cyborg. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I love that film, so I'll give that. Um, <laughs> so Cyborg's very much uh, it, there's a lot more heart and humor in this than his previous two out. There's a lot of heart in Man of Steel, but. These films are criticised for being sombre and they're criticised for being humourless and throw a joke in there, you know. This funny character, I've always felt Perry White and Alfred have always been amusing to me. But, like, um, yeah, th- this really adds earned organic heart and humour to to make the whole thing slightly lighter. By the same token, um, Steppenwolf and, and the world surrounding him so much more developed. It's also more edgelord and... <laughs> <laughs> dark side and, and fourth world explored and all that is badass but it's an epic it's an epic undertaking a four-hour film but if you don't like man of steel batman v superman yes a four-hour version of justice league's probably not for you but for the, for those who are fascinated because obviously it's a fascinating story i think there's a lot of humor a lot of heart a lot more depth but be prepared to watch Lord of the Rings and not the Avengers, because you'll be a bit disappointed. I never thought I'd get it, and it was just a joyous experience. Uh, I, I can't help but gush a bit about the film, because I wasn't supposed to get this. Uh, I, I, <laughs> it's not been easy being a DCEU fan. Uh, everyone tells you we're wrong to like it, they're not good, they're not the characters. What Marvel, Marvel, you should be watching Marvel, because apparently you can't like both. <laughs> oh, I, I, I absolutely hate that opinion. I've seen so many people online comparing 
Marvel and DC. You can love any comic book. It's annoying when people feel that they need to compare them. It'd be like saying, oh, I watched those Harry Potter films. Lord of the Rings did it better. <laughs> yeah. Is the room for Snyder within the DCU going forwards? So if he said, I'm coming back for one epic finale, this is my final film for this universe, I'd be super excited. But in terms of restoring the Snyderverse in terms of a direction and plan, I think unfortunately we're past that and it's a shame, but we, we are. And I want to see James Gunn's Suicide Squad and I want to see Matt Reeves' Batman. And, and when, when have Warner Brothers been the most successful? It's when filmmaker-led singular takes on characters, Todd Phillips' Joker, Dick Donner's Superman, Chris Nolan's Batman. Just That's probably the angle we need to go. Um, but uh, yes, I'd definitely take more. <laughs> <laughs> One positive I'll give is that after watching this version of Justice League, I think that The Flash is a lot more developed as a character uh, yeah i think if i had to what what are the biggest takeaways from this version and why is it superior to the theatrical version bar just various feelings of epicness and tone and soundtrack and whatever it's clearly well with cyborg and flash I, I think flash is you can't put a price on that sort of change of chemistry of levity it's levity but it's not like he's pure jokes like in the Jocks Reading version. He's got his own arc, he's got his own mm -hmm. drama, he's he's got his own moments. Um but uh it's just refreshing and that character is done is really interestingly rendered. There's a lot of heart and humour and there's a lot of epic sweeping moments and and it just gives everything room to breathe. Does it breathe too much on occasion? That's a matter of debate. I'm sure there's scenes that agree and scenes I want but like it's a it's a it's it's a triumph of a filmmaker over a studio, isn't it? A filmmaker gets to do as complete a version of his film as he could and it's for better in a lot of places for that and it's for worse in a couple of places for that but if anything it made me want to watch the theatrical and then the Snyder Cut again it's like such a such a fascinating unprecedented set of events isn't it well um thank you for uh sharing your thoughts on this because I want, we wanted to get the variety of thoughts over such an event movie getting released and obviously you are you are not only a really good friend, but a really good DC fan. So thank you again, Scott. <laughs> you can hear the whole chat that I had with Scott in a bonus episode that I'll be dropping in a couple of days. So keep a lookout for that because he went into a bit more exploration of the whole DC universe and Zack Snyder's approach to it and the characters, etc. So it was great to chat to him. We do hope to get him back on the show sometime down the line. So lots of different opposing views. And that's what this show's about, different opposing views. doesn't mean that anybody should fall out with each other. And you know what? We're beyond that anyway. So if you, if you don't like what we have to say, that's fine. You just don't need to tell us. So neither for me the magnus opus that some expected, nor is it the car wreck of a movie of the original. It's a, it's a flawed, fascinating climax to Snyder's grand DCU experiment. Uh, a film that I don't think I'll ever go back to, but you never know. I'm not in a rush to see it. Andy, final word? For me, it was, yes, better than the last version that was out, but still, there's nothing there that really, really needed to be there and really needed to exist. It's overlong. It needed at least an hour taken out of it to maybe get an average film. Looks good in moments. Again, Zack Snyder's great at moments. The best thing to come from this is that now that it's out the way, we can start getting excited for Zack Snyder, getting back to playing with zombies okay so boy we spent a lot of time on that one 
Quickly, Andy, anything else you've seen over the last week? <laughs> last week, I mentioned that War with Grandpa would be landing on Amazon, and I mockingly expected it to be rubbish, and I actually enjoyed it. It was disposable fluff. De Niro is the aging dad who moves in with his daughter and family, taking the bedroom of the son, who's relegated to a dank, dark attic. The boy declares war and drafts a declaration against his grandpa. They decide on rules of engagement and immediately break the first one, no collateral damage to property or other people, with every amusing pank from then on. It's fun. Outstays its welcome a bit, but a lot of enjoyment comes from Uma Thurman as the mother and her antics in the film. Worth a check. I watched yesterday, and I'm, all I'm going to say is, no thanks. And I also watched Skylines, which was the third, yes, there's been three, Skyline film. It looked like it was made with a third of the budget of the first film, because it looks so shonky. The first film was never anything stellar, but did make good use of low budget and location to seem grander than it was. But sadly, the series has become typically sci-fi, trying to be epic in scale, but with a straight-to-DVD budget. And it looks Sharknado level of production. Shoddy acting, weak effects, and an attempt at the scale of planetary war that fails to impress. Let's draw a skyline under this franchise from now on. Even though it's kind of a little bit overshadowed by uh, Justice League, The Falcon and Winter Soldier landed on Disney Plus Friday. I caught the first episode. Did you? Oh, yes. Friday morning, straight away. Pop this on. Because as was, was going to happen with WandaVision, within an hour of it airing, spoilers are online. So you have to make sure that you get this watched if you want to stay involved. Um, what a great start. Yeah. Now, I, I did have some problems with it. I thought some of the, you know, the positives are what a fantastic opening sequence, the action sequence. And of course, it looks so cinematic, more like a movie than, than a TV show. Made me think of, of all things, the Mission Impossible series with that kind of huge scale action opener. I thought the direction was was stunning. I like the fact that it was a slow burn. The main problem I had with it is it was that slow burn quality. Now, it sits in this this weird area for me of being, yes, of course, it's a TV show. It's over six episodes. But it's also, you could define it as a, as a movie chopped into, into six episodes. Uh, and, and I think that's, at this point, I, I didn't feel I knew where it was going. I think it will course correct. I'm hoping it will course correct by episode two. But it was a little bit trudgy in a way that for uh, a first episode of anything, and if, if this was a movie, it would already be halfway through, that it, it, it had a, a little bit of time to be a little bit lackadaisical on setting out its store. But the performances were great. I, I mean, both leads are, are so charming that they are over the hill and back again. Uh, and I, I'm, I will be around and I'm absolutely intrigued to see where it will go. I think they've, they've added some interesting aspects of this post-blip world that it's living in. You've got the Flag Smashers terrorist group, which... It's a, it's a terrorist group that believes that the world was better before the population was restored and want a unified Earth breaking down borders, which is a great way for me of showing that sometimes terrorist organisations come from quite a positive ideal. Is there anything wrong with wanting unified Earth? No. Should you go around blowing places up? No, definitely not. And I love that aspect that they're not necessarily bad guys. Uh, you got the introduction of John Walker as the new Captain America, which comic book fans will know us agent time but folks and the ptsd aspect of bucky's hidden life as winter soldier his attempts to come to terms with the actions that he did and is making amends I, th I think that's an interesting way that they can approach it and whilst they could have done this on a film i think that it needs a tv series to give a chance to properly explore these themes i'm excited to see how it goes i love that it opened with that action sequence it was like they said you know the first two episodes of wandavision that you were a bit alienated with well this is marvel and just went, here you go. This And it had echoes of 
Captain America Winter Soldier opening with him falling backwards out the airplane and then going into action. It was the same kind of framing. Really enjoyed it. Looking forward to seeing how this goes. Six episodes. It's going to be a fast six weeks. Yeah, looking forward to it. So we've just got time for a quick roundup of other things that are coming to the streaming services over the next week that we've got our eye on. So first of all, Crazy Rich Asians will be landing on Netflix this week and is well worth checking out. I was late to the party on this film. I didn't see what the fuss was until I watched it last year and thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, The Regulars, a TV series, lands on Netflix. Supernatural mystery set in Arthur Conan Doyle's 19th century London. And a film called Bad Trip, which is a hidden camera capture film of two friends pulling pranks on unsuspecting strangers. If you think Borat and that kind of approach... That's it. You've got it. Over on Amazon, Liam Neeson's in a comedy called Made in Italy, which sees him play a London artist who returns to Italy with his estranged son to make a quick sale of the house inherited from his late wife, only to find the home in a bad state of repair. And in addition, Invincible Season 1 will be landing on Amazon, based on Robert Kirkman's adult superhero comic book series, uh, Robert Kirkman being the same guy behind Walking Dead. So that's well worth checking out. So that's it for this week. But before we go... Well, we do it every week. We give you our neat thing. That's something that Andy uh, and I have either watched, uh, listened to, played with, ate, you name it. As long as it's neat, we'll tell you about it. Andy, your neat thing for this week. My neat thing for this week is something for PlayStation owners to keep a lookout from tomorrow onwards. PlayStation's Play at Home event, which they already started the ball rolling by giving away Ratchet and Clank last month. Well, it properly runs live from tomorrow. Uh, over this weekend and for the next two months. And there's going to be loads of free games for all owners of PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5. You don't have to be a PlayStation Plus subscriber to get these on the PlayStation Store. From March the 25th, Abzu, Enter the Gungeon, Res Infinite, Subnautica, The Witness, Astrobot Rescue Mission, Moss, Thumper and Paper Beast are free to download. And then on April the 19th, Horizon Zero Dawn Complete Edition will drop completely free for anyone who owns the systems. These are a great selection of games. Some of them are VR games. Some of them are just standard games. Great games to add to everyone's collection. Free games. I've not done a great deal, as you know, over the last week, but I've done a bit of reading uh, to keep myself busy. I have read Kelly Thompson's work on Jessica Jones and Hawkeye. This is the uh, Hawkeye, which is the Kate Bishop run. And uh, Jessica Jones, after Brian Michael Bendis, who created the character, moved on and went to DC, where he was writing Superman, uh, which ties it all in. What an absolute joy these these two books uh, have been. Her take on Jessica Jones has is still in the same ballpark as Bendis. It's it's lacking the kind of bad language that he brought to it and the the more adult tones. But she makes it such a charming and likable character and. Uh, I've just had such a good time that I, I wish I'd bought all the runs on, on Hawkeye. If this is the Hawkeye that we're going to see in the upcoming Disney Plus series, then I'm so looking forward to seeing Kate Bishop as Hawkeye. But that's Kelly Thompson's run on both Jessica Jones and Hawkeye. Uh, and that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another show. But in the meantime, Andy, I'll see you later, yeah? I'll see you in the past. And Andy, the world has grown dark. And while we have reasons to fear, we have the strength not to.